HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Bend a Table, a monthly food subscription service for avid home cooks focused on delicious and sustainable pantry items. Learn more at bendatable.com. That's B-E-N-T-O-T-A-B-L-E.com. And when you use code HRN for a new subscription, you get $20 off, and we at HRN get $10. Bucks. Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you actually live, but still from the Lower East Side. And we have Matt in the booth in uh, Rhode Island. Nastasia, yeah. where Nastasia, where are you? New York. Uh, New York City. And we got uh, John also in New York uh, on more of an Upper East Side situation. Not in Bushwick, Brooklyn. But who knows when we'll be back in Bushwick, Brooklyn, right? Hopefully never. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Wow, all right. How do you really feel about it, though, Anastasia? Anastasia's like, every every dark cloud's got a silver lining. At least I don't have to go over there. Wow. Damn, Stas. Yes. (laughs) Well, the thing about Anastasia is, is that the only time she pulls her punches is when it makes her life easier, right? So, like... (laughs) <laughs> like, for instance, if I'm working on a recipe and I have, like, three different iterations and I'm like, which one's better? She'll just choose so that I shut up. She, she doesn't actually care about the quality no. of it because she doesn't care about the quality Your of the stuff. quality standards are, like, 5% better on each iteration, right? So it's like... Yeah, but that's that's my that's whole life true. is that 5%. My whole life is that 5%. Which but means that you don't respect I, anything that I'm doing. Right, but the reason why I'm your business partner is because I make decisions and I'm like, you know what, let's just do it instead of going over it. You know, what's the what's the term that like people use in the business world? Done is better than perfect. You, you're the opposite of that. Perfect is better than done. What? No, 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 listen. Yeah. My, my motto, my motto in school yes. was better done than good. Really? Better done, yeah. Because wow. if I don't care about something, better get it done than good. But if something's a lifelong project, Which like French fries or yeah. something like this, there is no done. And if there is no done there ever, done when creating products, there has to be a done, or we don't make money. Yeah, but you, what? Like I'm going to do it. In other words, like I'm going to do it again and again and again for the rest of my life. So that's like the, the whole idea of cho- the whole thing about cooking 
as opposed to other things like writing a book, let's say, right, is that, you, you know, unless you plan on dying tomorrow, you get to do it again. And so you want to be a little bit better next time than you were this time. So the, whereas something that you're going to actually complete and hand off and never look at again, sure, better done, better done than good, especially when it comes to like school essays or, you know, or things like this, things that are like tearing you apart from the inside that you have to do. You know, you're like, eh, eh. at least it's done, right? That's why I used to love tests. So when you're in school, I always used to pray for tests because there's a limited amount of work you can do prior to a test. And then the test is going to happen and you can't drag it on. There's no dragging a test on because the test happens. You know what I'm saying? Yes. But it's As opposed the same thing to with a paper and having a due date. Yeah, no, no, because due dates are always fungible. You can always. Look, here's the thing. Like in college, once you realize that nobody is ever going to hold you to a due date, that nothing has meaning anymore and that everything can be twisted around. I always took due dates very seriously. Yeah, well. Yeah, same here. Not me. When I taught at you, UConn, I enforced my due date seriously. I did not. And a word of caution to any college students out there, I still to this day have dreams about assignments that I didn't finish, like that I believe I didn't finish and I've like not actually graduated from college. So don't do it the Dave Arnold way. Like just just do the work. <laughs> just give it in at the right time. Have a, Otherwise it might haunt you for the rest of your life. Speaking of haunting for the rest of your life, did I, have I ever told the story of staying up 72 hours in a row? I don't. Not to me. Stupid. Have I told this on the air? Probably. Okay. Uh, well, I'll tell do you. It. I'll, okay, do it, do it. So here's what happened. So uh, when I was in college, and Nastasi hates when I just say that, so I went to Yale. I was at Yale, where her <laughs> sister went. Or as Nastasi <laughs> likes to say, you went to I went to college in New Haven. Um, no, 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 but you could do the opposite with where you were born. Did we talk about this already? No, we have not talked about this. Whatever, whatever. Go ahead. So I was, my mom was an undergraduate at Stanford when I was born. And that's when her parents, my grandparents, who are both now dead, told her that she would never be successful, never reach her dreams, never, you know, never accomplish her life goals. By the way, she started the pediatric heart transplant program at Columbia University, which she still runs and has the, the best survival, long-term survival numbers of anyone in, in the business and has saved countless lives of, of kids that would be dead and it's transplanted kids that no one else on freaking earth would transplant so yeah never never went very far my mom anyway um it's tough tough being raised by such a degenerate yeah i know right anyway so uh so yeah her parents tell her nothing's ever going to happen to her but anyway she's never going to you know do anything but anyway i was born at stanford hospital at stanford university hospital and so uh, my dad always, you know, for some reason it stuck in my dad's head and he loved the idea that Stanford University had its own zip code. And so my actual place of birth on my, whatever they give you, that piece of paper when you're born, it says Stanford and not Palo Alto. So you're like, where, where were you born? I'm Stanford. And they're like, you mean Palo Alto? So now I just say, it just, it's just confusing because everyone's like Palo Alto. I'm like, no, I wasn't born in freaking Palo Alto. What am I? What am I? So my mom like, you know, had me on the street, on the freaking street. I was in the hospital. You know what I mean? Anyway. Anyway. Do they have hospitals in Palo Alto or is it all just at Stanford size? 
I think there's an East Palo Alto hospital. I don't, I don't know about, yeah, they have, yeah, I've been to the Stanford. I mean the Palo Alto hospital before. Hmm. Why? STD scare. Yeah, but you couldn't go to student health for that? They always, they thought you were pregnant, like, immediately. It was just very stupid. Student health is very stupid. They have tests for that. At Yale, at Yale, <laughs> student health was just how much did you drink and when did you drink it? Like, that's I, what it was. I didn't drink in college, so. Oh, that my God. All right. So here's what happened. So at Yale, they had this deal where you you could – up to a couple of weeks, you could, you know, um, drop a class and nothing, nothing would happen, right? I mean, it was saying, you know what, this class, crap on this class. You could do that. But then uh, literally up until the last day of classes, you could drop a class and it would just show up as a drop, but it wouldn't show up as a grade. You wouldn't get graded for it. It would just show up, oh, dude dropped this class, right? So, you know, I was, you know whatever, not necessarily going to classes or, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Doing what my homework. Doing? Anything else. I was going to the library and spending like a good three or four hours a day sifting through the stacks, which is what the, you know, the, where the library books are called. So like, for instance, I would hit certain sections. I went through a thing where I was looking up uh, a British um, kind of early modern execution practices, surprising amount of information on British like early modern execution practices. Anyway, so like at any one time in my room, I would have the maximum allowable number of books out, which is 50. I know I've told the story on the air before about how I committed uh, postal, uh, inter- you know, like a postal fraud uh, to not pay my fines at the Yale University. By the way, the obscenely high fines at the Yale University Library. Um, yeah, but that's how I got interested in Russian absurdist literature, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, so I spent most of my time because there was no internet, the way that you found random information was to go into a giant library and wander around and pick up books. So that's what I did with most of my time. And I listened to a lot of stereo. I sit in my room listening to stereo quite a bit. And I, I spent work 50 hours a week to pay for my tuition. Well, that's what okay. I did in my free time. Sounds awesome. Sounds fun. What did you work as? I was a lifeguard at the pool. I was a research assistant to this pervert. I was a waitress. Oh, down a research assistant where? You you fuzzed. For a pervert. Oh. And then I was a waitress downtown in Palo Alto. Huh. Yeah. What kind of restaurant? It was called Empire Grill and Tap Room. So it was like an American American place. You think that place is still there? I uh, know. I asked and I searched. It's not there. So you can't go back and be like... Anyway. I would not want to go back. That- you wouldn't go back and do all sorts of crazy stuff? No. So... My wife Jen had a job at a at some sort of place like that, like a Ramada, like a restaurant at a Ramada or something like this, where she had like the terrible polyester, like you know, skirt thing that she had to wear. Mm-hmm. And she to- told me the story that she, because you know, she lived in Germany in high school, and so she, because um, her, you know, her dad was Air Force, that she, they had no one had trained her how to bring a tray of uh, glass glasses out to, you know, drinks out to a table. Yeah. So she goes out to the table, you know, and she lifts up the glass on the edge, and the whole tray goes. <laughs> <laughs> 
boom, boom, and like yeah. falls on the table all over everyone, right? Which is classic. Although I don't know how Jen got the job because she's not, a, she doesn't lie. I mean, everyone out there who has ever been a server knows that the only way to get that first service job is to lie, right? I mean, is there, is that still the truth? John, is I, that still the truth? I, say that you never lied? Sorry. The only way oh. to get your first server job is to lie. lie. My mom yes. was my reference as a fake person, yes. Right, so you lied. Yeah. There, there, like, yeah. I, don't, I don't think, like, I think it's like you can't go into the service industry unless you're willing to make that first lie. It's like, it's the bargain of the food service industry, right? It's like, you can't, you have to be a little bit of a degenerate enough to lie to get that first job. And if you're not willing to lie to get that first job, maybe, just maybe, this business is not for you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, let's be honest. Like, you're going to have to lie to uh, your guests all the time. Like, when Booker was working for you at Pasta Flyer, Booker hates pasta. And yeah. so we had to go through a lot of training with him on what to say when people ask what they should get. Like, he's not allowed to say, like, it's all gross. I hate it all. It's <laughs> pasta. I hate pasta. Right? So you... <laughs> You have to be willing to do a certain amount of kind of, I like to think of them as helpful lies. You know what I mean? To people. Anyway. Uh, so, so anyway, so she dumps this whole tray of, of, uh, of drinks all over these people. And this is the only time, no offense to our European friends, but this is the only time that she was lucky she was serving a table of Germans because she realized that they were Germans and started instantly apologizing to them in German. And they were like, oh, you know, it's, you know, everything was okay. Everything was forgiven because here's this American person in, you know, in, a, in America speaking German to them and apologizing. So she ended up actually getting a good tip out of the situation, which is crazy. It's great. Yeah. Anyway, so to a less pleasant story. So you're allowed to drop your classes at Yale up until the very, very, very last day. By that, I mean end of day, last day of classes, 5 p.m. Now. When you drop a class, right, what you do is you just hand in a piece of paper saying, I am dropping this class, and you hand it to the dean's admin, right, person before 5 p.m. on the last day of classes. That's all that's required. So I was taking this class called Math 301 Complex Analysis. Uh, by the way, for those of you math people out there, we were using uh, Rudin as the textbook, which I still own, on complex analysis. And, uh, and about three weeks, so I couldn't quite drop it without it showing up on my, on my transcript. But I was like, you know what? No, I'm not, no, 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 no. And I, I, I left the class. I never went back. I never did the homework. I never went to class. I, I never took the tests. I didn't do anything. And I'm like, I'll just drop it. I'll drop it. The classic me, guess what I never did? When I you never dropped it. I never handed in that one piece of paper. I had, I had... 11 weeks, 11 weeks of knowing I wasn't going to take this class. <laughs> and all I needed to do, and by the way, the dean's office, the dean's office, it's not like it was like, oh my God, it was snowing and it was like two miles away and I didn't have a car. No, I did not have to leave the covering of my college building. I could have gone entirely in an underground tunnel in a matter of three minutes and made it to the dean's office to hand in this piece of paper, right? I just didn't do it. So this will give you an idea kind of of me, right? So 
so there I am. I'm like, hey, hey, hey. And then I'm at my one of my philosophy professor. I'm at like his house, right? Because he's having an after, you know, like a whatever. Like, hey, you know, school year's over, blah, blah, blah. And then someone's like, oh, yeah. Uh, it's officially over. It's five. And I was like, oh my God, I didn't drop the class. And so then I was way the heck far away because I was at this dude's house, right? And so I just start running. <laughs> I'm running full speed and like I have, and like, uh, like I have a piece of paper, I like scrawl that I think and I, and like I collapse on the, on the, on the Dean's office, which is closed, even though it's like only 15 minutes afterwards. And I slip the paper underneath that's saying, please let me drop this class. 15 minutes late. And my dean was a professor of military history. And my dean, his only, my first dean, my, his only thing that he really enjoyed doing was making people cry in the dining hall. Just like rancid, rancid dude. You know what I mean? Like, loved making people cry. He's probably dead now, so I'll call him out. His name was Seleski, Dean Seleski. Anyway, so he, um, he was like, nope. And he had this weird, like, pursed lip situation. Nope, sorry. Uh, sorry, that, those are the rules. You have to uh, take the class. I was like, take the class? Take the class. And I, now, bear in mind, you're speaking to a, a guy, a kid, really, who already you realize that all he had to do was hand in a single piece of paper and this wouldn't have been a problem and he didn't do it. Now, do you think that I had planned ahead so that I didn't have to do all of my semester's work in that last week and a half before exams? Or do you think I had already planned on pulling a bunch of all-nighters to do all of my work that I hadn't done during the year because I was too busy reading about uh, early modern English execution practices? It was the latter. I didn't have any extra time because I had already been like, oh my God, I already have three 20-page papers I need to write in the next week and a half. I already have, you know, I already have this test and this. So basically, I went to the math professor and I said, listen, you don't know me. He's like, yeah, I don't know you. He's like, yeah, I didn't take your class, right? He's like, no, you weren't in my class. I have no idea who you are. Well, guess what? I'm taking the class. And he was gracious enough to let me take the midterm and the final, waive the homeworks that I hadn't done, right? And, but I had to stay up for 72 hours straight just to do the extra work to study to take the midterm and final so that I could get a grade in, in that class. And was I was told, what'd you say? What'd you get? In that class, he mercifully gave me a C in that class. That was the most merciful C ever on the face of the earth. But I was told by my friends and colleagues that I was not, I was able to do, I did well in the rest of my classes, thankfully, right? But I was not able to speak. I was not able to speak to people because I was so incoherent from la lack of sleep. And that this is when I learned that a shower is two hours worth of sleep. That if you, if you need an extra two hours of sleep, a shower will do that. And I remember very distinctly, I didn't drink coffee at the time. I was drinking uh, liters and liters of tea. I would bring soda bottles in, fill them with tea, and then walk around uh, drinking tea. And I remember around hour like 58 or 59, when I was pouring the tea into my bottle, I poured the hot tea all over my hand and completely scalded it, like a really bad, like a, like a really bad burn all over my hand. And I remember to this day, I was like, sweet, the pain will keep me up. And that was it. I did well. Oh, my God. So anyway, oh. as Matt says, probably <laughs> don't be like me.
probably don't be like me. That is actually the nightmare scenario that I have, that I'm like enrolled in a class and that I've completely forgotten about it entirely and that's past the expiration and I cannot get out of it. Yeah, so you lived it. Great. Yeah, well, as as usual, Matt, I'm living the dream. Yes, you are. Yeah, living the nightmare. That's That should be our motto, Stas. Living the dream? Living, living the nightmare. <laughs> living the nightmare. Here you go. All right. Did you hear uh, that? Cuomo is leaving CNN. Their brother, Chris. Yeah. He, by the way, was at Yale with me a year a year yeah. above me. Oh wow. Yeah. So did I tell this story? So when I started going out with my wife, uh, I went. Okay. So we're going out. I had this room, but I wanted to put the bed up against the door, right? Because I wanted to rearrange my bedroom. And this guy. John Morning, who was, you know, he was a senior. I was a junior. He was a senior. He was next to me. I had the good computer with the video games. I wanted to move my bed over, but then there was no way that he was going to be able to go through our fire door and use my computer. So I took a circular saw and Dutch doored my door so that you could, and added an extra hinge so that he could come in and out and walk over my bed in his sneakers to play my, to play my computer. And one day, Chris Cuomo, who was friends with John Morning, was banging on that door looking for somebody else. Anyway, Chris Cuomo. So why is he leaving CNN? He realized that he um, couldn't be himself and that everyone should call Trump out and he's sick of like pretending that Trump isn't a problem and all this other stuff. I thought CNN was very openly anti-Trump. Not enough for Chris Cuomo. Also, some guy like attacked him in his driveway. Well, like started saying crap to him in his driveway while he was on coronavirus shutdown. And he was like, I really wanted to tell this guy off, but I couldn't because I have to keep up this, you know, nice guy personality for CNN and I don't care anymore. Wait, so you're saying if he had quit two days earlier, he could have clocked this guy? Yeah, he's, he basically <laughs> said I have to <laughs> No, uh, you know, those are the kind of regrets you don't want to be like when you're like, you know, you're on your you're on your deathbed. You got the death rattle. You know, you're like, I should have clocked that guy. You know what I mean? That's not the it's not the kind of regret you want, you know. Yeah. But now he's going to look back and he's going to be like, well, at least I was able to clock the next one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but they're never going to be a next one. There will. There was like a. Oh, there will. He was he was having a fight on the internet with some guy. Remember, he was like taped having an argument with some guy at a bar like two months ago. Yeah, really. I don't yeah. know. His things like for me, I figure at this point I'm like 49 years old. I just don't get into fights with people. It's just not going to come up. You know what I mean? It's just well, like I guess there's certain people that get in fights sure. and certain people that don't. If you were a public personality like him, I think you'd have a lot more opportunity to get in fights with people, Dave. Like, no, listen, my whole life, I am, I am generally really. abrasive and I don't get into physical confrontations with people. I think there's just like, there's like people who get into physical confrontations and people who don't. I don't agree. I think if you had a national show, you would undoubtedly- Excuse get- me, cooking issues is an international show. <laughs> don't, come, come on now. Yeah. Matthew, you ever been in a fight? No, man. Look at no. me. No. What about you, John? You ever been in a fight? Uh, kind of. I went to a boarding school, which for purposes, I leave their name out of this. But uh, we were, I was a sophomore and I was rounded up at three in the morning to participate in what was called a cockfight. So me and other sophomores and freshmen were padded yeah. up with lacrosse gear and football helmets and we had to kick the crap out of each other. Oh, well, yeah. that was, that's more of a sport than a fight, though. 
Yeah. There was no animosity. You didn't. You weren't like, no. I want to no, beat the no crap out of this person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but I didn't also see how. Okay. Yeah, I mean, like. All right. And what about you, Stas? Okay. Fights? Fights? Yeah, in, in high school and middle school. Like knockdown, drag out fights? With other girls, yeah. Did you win? Uh, I remember it being broken up before there was like a winner. You know? That's kind of the best, right? Then everyone can walk away. The guy in the head because he said something to me and then he started bleeding, but I had just, it it looked bad, but I had just popped his pimple and then I had to go to detention because they thought that I had like broken his forehead open, literally just burst his pimple. Wow, that's gross. (laughs) But I was... Well, wait, stop, wait, stop, stop, stop. Everyone listening, everyone listening is still processing this. You know, I am. And we were in the swimming pool, like in the... Oh, Jesus. Oh, no. Is this this why you hate swimming pools? Yeah, and it was like bleeding all over, and they were like, you're going to detention. And I was like, Jonathan's pimple. Because of poly pimples. That's why you hate swimming pool, because of poly pimples that you popped in the the forehead. Swimming pools were lots of... Like, during swim practice, there was so much disgusting crap in that pool. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah, I forgot. You just said you were a lifeguard. So you used to be a lifeguard. So you're... In high school in a, and college. So your inability was... So at some point after college, you're like, I'm never going back to one of these yeah. places again. Yeah, it's real gross. Real gross. Real gross. Wow. Wow. All right. Uh, so Marco is listening in and had a question in the chat. All right. Uh, It says, hi, Dave. Another oven question. I recently moved to a new apartment, and the oven is real crap. It is a gas oven, not too old, but the heat comes only from the bottom bottom, with a gradient that is much steeper than any other oven I have had. I tried to blind bake a tart shell, and the bottom was almost burned while the sides still pale, even with a double tray. Veggies get a weird texture, hard and dry exterior. There is no crisping apart from where in contact with the baking tray. If you have any solutions in mind, putting a baking steel on the top shelf or something like that. I thought about getting a small convection oven on the counter, but that would be quite inefficient. Uh, actually, they're not that inefficient. Uh, maybe space-wise inefficient, but uh, in the summer... By the way, they gave it to me for free. So the Breville Smart Oven, but like... I try to only cook things that will fit in that in the summer, summertime because it doesn't heat up the house as much. And I've done the math on it, and it's not that inefficient from a power usage standpoint, although it is electric and not gas. Now, uh, wait, did he say it was a gas oven or an electric oven? I believe he said it was gas. So most gas ovens yeah. that I've used, home gas ovens that I've used, have a um, – the, the, the heat – the gas element is underneath the floor of the oven – and then that flame impinges directly on, you know, usually what amounts to an enamel plate on the bottom. And so you're going to get a, a pretty big gradient from the bottom to the top. I'm wondering why it's so bad in this particular oven. There's no way that putting a baking steel on the top is going to help you because um, if it's an actual temperature gradient, you will load that thing with heat, but it will load at the wrong temperature, right? It'll, in other words, like if, if, you're, if your oven's underpowered and it can't get the whole box to the correct temperature, then adding more mass to it will just make, make it longer to, 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 to get up to whatever temperature it was going to get up 
to. So like, I'll give you, I'll give you a, a, an example. So like, uh, I found an oven on the street once in the, in the mid nineties and I brought it into my apartment, which I wasn't allowed. It was my loft. I wasn't allowed to have, you know, cooking implements there. So I fa literally found it on the street and it, and, uh, it was, it was from the, I think twenties or thirties all white enamel, kind of nice, but no thermostats, no nothing. And I would just crank it. And then this was back in the days when everyone was talking about, you know, baking stones for kind of like the first time. So I was just loading fire bricks in. And what you realize is, is that after a while, it, it just, it takes a lot of time to load all of that extra mass up to the temperature you want, which is why when you're doing a retained heat masonry oven, they heat it for a long time, like hours, because you have to fill all of that mass with heat energy before you can start using it as a retained heat uh, oven. So anyway, if your oven is underpowered, adding extra thermal mass to it isn't a way to kind of help it out. It can maybe can even it out, but it's not going to help if you can't get up to the temperatures. You might want to look into just getting an electric element and like suspending it from the very top of your oven and having independent uh, top and bottoms. I've done that relatively effectively and that will add just a little boost of energy at the top. It doesn't have to be a lot. Like, you know, if you, a couple of hundred watts at the top can just take it, you know, that couple of extra degrees and help even you out. I don't know of a way of turning a non-convection oven into a convection oven reliably. Notice I add the word reliably. I have done it, but I wouldn't call it reliable. Anyway, I don't know. Was this helpful at all, guys? What do you think? I mean, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I, it, it would be silly of them to try the baking sheet thing, at, load it up with heat at the bottom, and then move it up to the top after it was heated to the correct or above the correct temperature, right? They, they, no, they could totally do that. It's just that the problem is then, you know, how long is it going to stay at that temperature? And then it's going to go to a relatively lower temperature. So it's just a question of how long you're cooking something, right? So like most of the tricks people do with, um, with pizzas, right? So that people are using like those, those when they're cooking breads or pizzas, my question to them always is, well, how many are you doing? You know what I mean? Because, you know, any recipe that tells you heat, so like let's say your oven takes 15 minutes to heat up, right? So if you have an oven that takes 15 minutes to heat up, if you look at most recipes that involve baking stones or baking steels, the heat up time for them is substantially longer, right? And they'll always say put it in for a substantially longer period of time. And the reason they tell you that is because you're loading it up with the energy that you need. Now then... Yep. When you add stuff to it, the whole point of like a baking steel, for instance, is that you've stored energy into it and now you unload it into your pizza or whatever, right? So then the thing is, is that if you put something on it again right away, then you're, that's it. You know what I mean? Like you have to wait a certain period of time. So it's all a question of you can, you can do anything. It's a, it's a question of how long can you do it for and how many of that thing in a, in a row can you do. So, like, for instance, my crepe maker, my gas crepe maker, like, if you, you have to throttle it almost down to zero if you're not going to be cooking with it because you're expected to put a huge, a huge thermal mass of, like, crepe is basically it's the same as pouring water almost on the entire thing. And that takes a huge amount of energy to heat up really quickly. So then you have to crank the crepe maker 
all the way up, right, so that you get the right amount of uh, heat input. Right? And so getting this kind of heat input versus kind of output to be the same is the trick of someone who's doing high volume cooking. This is the reason why most tacos al pastor are no good unless you go to a place that makes tacos al pastor constantly because the way that an al pastor, so an al pastor, you know, is the vertical spit sometimes with the pineapple on top. It rotates. You cut off the al pastor into the taco oh, and then you take sorry. a wedge of pineapple. What do you say? Tell the story. Which one? The most famous one. Which With one? Jeremiah. Oh, yeah, I can, but yeah. I'll tell that. So anyway, so like the, the point is, is that is that the way that an Al Pastor rig is set up is it wants to be on heavy blast all the time so that you get a nice outside crust on your on your on the on the meat. Right. So you can cut it off and you have that nice kind of, you know, crust, not crust thing. Right. But you you and if you don't do it all the time, you have to turn it way down and it's not the same, right? So it's, it's all about heat input versus output. So Jeremiah uh, and Fabulous from Contra Wild Air came and did a MOFAD uh, Museum of Food and Drink um, kind of getting to know you event at the Harry Houdini house in California. You know, this is before all the COVID last year. And they rented or borrowed a, like a portable pastor unit, right? So it's like this like portable thing. And Jeremiah was like, hey, this is not cooking fast enough. And so he tried to move it, but didn't kind of, I guess, realize that the way those things are set up is it's all just kind of friction and luck that keeps it kind of vertical. It's not like pinioned into a, a hard place because the idea is you might have to move it back and forth. So you literally, there's a block in the bottom that the vertical spit sits in and that block can slide back and forth and then there's an arm over the top and that arm moves, but you have to be very careful and slide it without letting it tilt or as we found out, all hell breaks loose. So he tries to move it like right before guests show up and then the Al Pastor falls over. Did it actually hit the ground, Stas, or no? No, it hit the grill part or whatever that is now fabulous had been riding uh some form of scooter fabulous is fabian von hauske he'd been riding some sort of scooter the week prior and i don't know whether he was scooting well well imbibing or what but he busted his arm up real bad like his arm was like you know kind of like robocop like full traction like pins and metal and all this crap right Saz? yeah it was like totally messed up. And so Fabulous couldn't help Jeremiah write the thing. I'm in a full, what was I dressed in, Stas? I had my full jacket and everything on, right? And there's Al Pastor meat everywhere. So like we're all running in, we're stripping down to our like t-shirts and like grabbing this giant hunk of meat and trying to write it. And then we turn around and there's Harold McGee sipping champagne in a Zoltar outfit watching the whole proceedings. Shaking his head slowly. Yeah, best, best, best cooking moment of my life. Best cooking moment of my life right there. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so uh, the point, the point is, you want to get you, like any situation, you can do one of two things. You can either have enough heat it, input into something that you can do it constantly, or you can admit that you don't, and you can store up enough heat to do one or two things, and then you has, then you has to quit. That's how it works. Is that is that a, that answer your your Point, yeah. Matt. yeah, no, he said, uh, Marco said, thank you. And um, we should go to break, actual break. Uh, so mute yourselves for a second. Are we doing uh, classics in the field afterwards? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. All right, here we go. All right, right back. 
This episode is brought to you by Bend to Table, a monthly food subscription service for avid home cooks focused on delicious and sustainable pantry items. When we got our first boxes from Bend to Table, uh, you know, we Nastasi and I shared stuff from from our boxes, and in her Spanish box, she gave me the Las Hermanas uh, pimentón, the smoked uh, paprika, and Dax actually we he was making green beans because he's trying to make vegetables. He's like, I want to put paprika into the green beans. I was like, whatever. How about you use this one, the smoked paprika from uh, Bent to Table? And he was like, okay. And he put it in. He's like, Dad, these are the best green beans I've ever had in my life. Go to benttotable.com to start your own monthly subscription. Use the discount code HRN to get $20 off a new subscription. And Bend to Table will donate $10 to support cooking issues and all of HRN's programming. By the way, we're back, right? We're back? Yeah. 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 Dax does not talk like that. Again, I always had to, like people people like don't know me, like I only have like one or two voices that yeah. I used to imitate oh, other people. Everyone yeah. in your entire world doesn't sound exactly the same. That's yeah, thanks, thanks for explaining that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you never you never know. You never know. Some people might not know. I mean, uh yeah, all right. Anyway. Uh so by the way, on the uh on the on the flip if you somehow have not had enough of, uh, you know, yakking today, uh, I'm going to be, what time, John? 5.30. 5.30 on MoFads, that's at M-O-F-A-D's Instagram. We're going to have our unhappy hour where in which I will use milk syrup, which is a technique that's not in liquid intelligence because I came up with it afterwards, uh, to make a drink called Soft Cell, which, yes, is named after the Tainted Love Band. And, uh, yeah, what else? Because what are we pushing there? The membership drive? The membership drive, yeah. Which yeah. is going up through Friday. Going up Friday? Yeah. Going you up through a, Friday, so it ends on yeah, Friday. If yeah, you, if, if you still, if you're one of the people who's lucky to still have their job and you have some money, right, you should, yes. you should support us here at Heritage, but you should also support MoFad uh, so that we can get through this kind of terrible, terrible period. <laughs> um, yeah. But... Yeah, we'll talk more about the membership drive on the when you when you tune in to watch the MoFad Unhappy Hour in which I make the soft cell cocktail with milk syrup at five thirty. You said five thirty. Yeah. Definitely check out uh, the MoFad website and their Instagram account. Every day they're giving away something different. They uh, cocktail books. Is it true the Downton Abbey book is actually one of them? Dave's book and the Downton Abbey cocktail book. You'll get uh, one of them. Not, I don't think them together. Nastasia. You'll get one of those three books. Nastasia. I, I saw your book in the Downton Abbey cocktail book, and I was like, oh. That's- now listen. <laughs> what I have heard. Oh, I want one of those. I, I those. Listen. I don't know. I, I have not seen this, the Downton Abbey cocktail book. But what I, what I am told is that it is an excellent book. I'm really? not even. I'm not messing around. Yes, I, I hear that it is a very well written book. Oh, yeah. yeah. They came and did a talk at MoFad when the the book came out. It was really, who wrote really it? Good, really well attended. Yeah, John, who wrote it? Uh, I can't remember their name. It was a couple of different people. There was one cocktail. Linden, New Jersey. London, London. Oh, also, London, John, London. don't move away from the mic. I'm sorry. I'm like a cocktail historian from oh. Linden? What the hell? <laughs> <laughs> like, it's so random. You know what I mean? Uh, yes, that would now, be. Now, I will, uh, there is also, so there is a, 
I wouldn't say long and storied, but there is a history of people who write cookbooks around movies, media, and books. And so Booker, my son, uh, will only cook recipes out of one of the three different Star Wars cookbooks, which are all done with like Lego figurines and also, so he has like a Yoda soda. He has a, like, they're all named after things like that. Like, there's a, I uh, forget, they're all like Darth Maul this or well, you know like whatever. you know bar in the entire world is. The entire the Star Wars bar, apparently. Bar. Yeah. I told the Star Wars bar in Anaheim. Yeah, yeah. at the Disney, yeah. Um, so anyway, so so Booker only cooks out of Star Wars cookbooks. And then um, they're the Master and Commander series, which is best known for, I guess, that Russell Crowe movie that was out there. There's a whole series of books, and, and whoever wrote it, I don't know who it was, is uh, extremely interested in kind of period nautical accuracy. And there is a cookbook uh, having to do with all of the period kind of both nautical and non-nautical food items that are in Master and Commander. And it was written by historians, and they went to a bunch of historical kind of boat areas to figure out how to write it, including the one at Mystic. So there's that. And then uh, apparently the Downton Abbey cookbook. So, you know, this is a this is a well-known genre of cookbooks that Nastasia is not to be sneezed at. I'm not sneezing at it. I said I was interested. Hey, you were being sarcastic. You're a bad person. No, I was just about Classics to in the field. Classics in the field. Well, so before we do classics in the field, ah. I will say, hey, I will say this. Uh, we uh, a couple of weeks ago or a week ago, whatever it was, we asked people for their suggestions and we had some suggestions in. I'm going to mention them. Uh, so John wrote in, no relation to our John wrote in. Oh, by the way, uh, John, you want to get in touch with uh, Matt at Kitchen Arts and Letters and see whether he wants to do a COVID call-in classics in the field of his own? Yeah, I can certainly do that. All right, cool. So uh, Dave uh, requested uh, listener recommendations for classics in the field. Here are three of John's. The Art of the Cake by Bruce Healy and Paul, uh, I guess because it's French, it would be Bouga and not Bougat. What do you think, John? Bougat or Bouga? Bouga. 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 I'm going to say Bougats. Pauly Bougats. Anyway, uh, John says, great for learning the architecture of cakes. Healy, this is what caught my interest. Healy, the main author, was an American theoretical physicist before becoming taken with French cooking, and there is apparently no information about Bruce Healy on the internet. Now, I, uh, I also was not able to find anything. However, I found out that Shirley Corahir wrote the introduction to that book. So I did, John, put a text into Harold McGee to see whether he would contact Shirley to find more information about Bruce Healy, assuming that – I know, I know uh, McGee's doing well. I hope Shirley's also doing well. Um, second suggestion was La Cuisine, Secrets of Modern French Cooking by uh, – I'm going to call him in the American Raymond Oliver. Give me some French on that, John. Raymond Olivier. Oh, yeah, yeah. Do that again. I want to hear that again. Raymond Olivier. Yeah, yeah, baby. <laughs> anyway, uh, so he says it's like similar and slightly more modern than the uh, Pella. I'm going to call it Pella Pratt. Give me the Pella Pratt in en français. Pella Pratt. Ah, yeah. It's just like having my boy. So there was a, um, in, uh, I forget what was his name, uh, Pierre... Pierre Capretz was the guy's name. He was a, a very well-known uh, teacher of French, and he did a system uh, of it 
of teaching French that, and he was from Yale. And so like I lived in the language lab one year, like our dorm was in the language lab. And so we would hear all the language lab stuff. And so I always had to hear his tapes and he would say, you know, nous allons inventer une histoire. And then he would say, qu'est-ce que nous allons inventer? And you'd be like, le professeur. And he'd go, no, 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 une histoire, une histoire. Like that. And it was like, and so you're like, oh, I always have like the Pierre Capret's voice in my, in my head. But I think they stopped using it because he unnecessarily used a like a good looking, well, I, I won't talk about it. But anyway, I don't think that they teach the Capret's method anymore. But anyway, there, there you go. Nous allons inventer une histoire. Anyway, it's good to have someone who can bust out the real French because, you know, Peter won't do it. Peter Kim, uh, you know, everyone on this show's favorite punching bag would come on and I would try to get him to do the French stuff and he, he would never do it for me. Right, Stas? I don't know why. I don't know oh. why. Anyway, uh, so uh, La Cuisine, Secrets of Modern French Cooking, uh, it, it, I... It looks really, it looks really interesting, and the the pitch is similar to and slightly more modern than uh, Pelleprat, Pelleprat, um, and it, it has like a. Bu- anyway, I ordered it. Just as you know, John, I ordered it. I'll take a look at it, and we can come and take a look at it when it is. By the way, you can get those are both still available on. They're both over, well over a hundred dollars if you buy them on Amazon new. Uh, but the, both are available for under $10 if you buy them used, which is how I do everything. I buy all this stuff used. And his third recommendation was Gourmet's Old Vienna Cookbook, which you have as 1982, but it actually came out in 1959. I've also ordered a copy of that because I have to say, although you're calling out the art of the cake, which is like saying that French cakes – so the whole premise of the art of the cake is that French cakes are good, and we all know that's false. We all know it's Viennese cakes that are good. So it's interesting that you bust out an old Vienna cookbook and then a French book about cakes because, John, back me up on this. I mean, I love French cooking and French people know how to make cakes. But if you were going to say name a nationality with a cake, you wouldn't be like the French, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the French make excellent cakes, but you're right. When you do trace them all back to where they come from, it's mostly out of Vienna and Austria so, yeah. Because that is the epicenter of cake technology is Vienna, is Austria, right? I mean, like, that's yeah. like, if I had to choose a European place, right, for, like, con- like continental, in quotes, which was a thing back in the day, continental cuisine, like, like continental, like, pastry, I, it would be Austria, for sure, like, without any question of a doubt. Like, the French have the savory side on lock, and the Austrians have the pastry side. I mean, that's all there is, right? Yeah. The croissant even comes through Austria to France. Yeah, if it is something that is, a, like, a, you know, a patisserie situation, then odds are the Austrians do a good job. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Which is yep. why, you know, Chef Jürgen at the French Culinary Institute was an Austrian guy. You know what I mean? Like, and he was, you know, he actually worked at the Hotel Zacher. So do you guys know about the Zacher tort? Yeah. You do. Do you guys know, Matt? You know, Nastasia? Oh, I have no idea what that is. So the Hotel Zacher in Vienna makes a famous thing called the Zacher tort, which is basically translates as the Zacher cake, right? And so it's this famous kind of chocolate cake. And 
And it's one of those things like Colonel Sanders' recipe where no one person, only actually only one person knows the entire recipe for Zachertort, and they they rip all the labels off, have the deliveries come at different times, and only one person knows how to do it. So nobody, but nobody who has printed a Zachertort recipe has the actual legitimate recipe. So Chef Jurgen David, our friend, who is uh, one of the, you know, um, pastry or is one of the pastry teachers at the French Culinary Institute, right? He worked at the Hotel Zacher and somebody said that he had given an actual recipe for Zacher tort and he got an angry letter from his old compatriot, you know, his old pals at the Hotel Zacher being like, you must not say this. You did not have the actual Zacher tort recipe. No one has the Zacher tort recipe. He's like, I never said that. I never said that. But anyway, he got like painted with the brush of saying that he had said that he had the authentic recipe for the Zacher tort, and nobody does. Anyway, um, I mean, okay, John, as a as a as a francophone, be it Belgian, but not. I mean, the Genoise is a, is is a weak cake, right? I mean, like the Genoise is not a good cake. It's a good base. No, it could for be something. better. I mean, it's not a good cake, right? Yeah, no, it's, yeah, yeah, no, it's not. It's not. I Definitely, mean, what do you yeah, think, Room Stas? for improvement, just weak. Would you have a Genoise or would you have any American cake? I don't know what a Genoise is. It's like a sponge cake with no flavor. You have to soak <laughs> it in booze to have it have no flavor. It's, it's, also, it's also like has the benefit of being kind of dry. Yes, dry. Definitely. Sound delicious? Now, and then you speak to a French person, and the French person's like, ah, oui, 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 oui. but you soak it in brandy or whatever, liquor, and now all of a sudden it's good, or you soak it in syrup, and it's all of a sudden good. Well, why don't you just make a cake that tastes good without soaking it in syrup and brandy? That's all I'm saying. That's all. Agreed. I don't know. Am I being wrong yeah. about this? We got eight minutes. Classic uh, in the field. You guys are the worst. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. All right. So, what? what? So how are we the worst? I think people know how you're the worst. <laughs> Seven minutes, 45 seconds. <laughs> All right. So listen, I know I promised to do the, uh, the book of edible these nuts. And maybe I'll mention a little bit about that. But as I was going past by, by my boy, uh, by my boy, Frederick Roden, Rosengarten Jr. Um, while I was passing my kitchen, uh, my uh, bookshelf today, Something caught my eye that I haven't picked up in, in a couple of years. I picked it up. I was like, oh, snap. I have to do it. Uh, there's a book called The Mary Francis Cookbook. Adventures, get this. And this one you can get online, by the way. It's, it's, it was, it's from 1912, and it's public domain, so you can get the entire thing online, unlike the Rosengarten ones, which you can't. Um, Adventures Among the Kitchen People. Adventures Among the Kitchen People. So this book was published in the U.S. Uh, the person who wrote it, uh, her name was uh, Jane Eyre Fryer. Uh, and it's just an amazing document. It was published in 1912, and she was at the time a teacher in New Jersey of um, kind of whatever they called home ec at the time, domestic science, whatever they call it at the time. And this was the first, the Mary Francis cookbook was the first of a whole bunch of Mary Francis things. There was Mary Francis knitting, Mary Francis, like, you know, sewing, whatever. Mary Francis this, Mary Francis that, all home ec stuff. But the, the conceit is uh, that it's a children's book, an actual story, 
and the story's got its own craziness. And it's printed in in almost like uh, it's printed in in two colors, like a red and black. And the printing is kind of amazing. And if if you're ever a fan of those kind of like woodcutty looking early 1900s um, books. It is quite amazing, and the illustrations are amazing. But the conceit is, is that it's a children's story contained inside of another story that is also a cookbook. And so what happens is, is that the, the mom, and it, this is, it also has all the weird gender garbage of the time, and also some weird like race and vagabond garbage of the time, but not too heavy, enough to make it so that you, don't ha- you can't not read the book. So the... The idea of it, and, and here's my, my favorite touch, one of my favorite touches, is in the front where you would normally write a dedication to a book if you were giving it to a member of your family or a friend, she printed, right, with a woodblock cut, this inscription, a book for all girls who love to help mother, Jane Eyre Fryer. And that's printed as though she's inscribing the book to you, which is kind of a sick move. Um, anyway, so like... Here's, here's how crazy it is. The mom, right, is sick, in quotes, and needs to go out to the sea to get rest and get well, end quotes. Now, in 1912 talk, this means that they're hyping the mom up on drugs, and they think that she's, quote-unquote, hysterical, and are sending her to a sanatorium. So this is like classic, like, anti-woman movement of the day. Remember, this is right at the height of the reform movement, right before prohibition took place, before uh, women's suffrage has happened. So there's this whole undercurrent of the mom is taken away Right to go heal herself in quotes at a sanitarium, and then uh, the aunt who starts out mean but turns out nice, right, shows up and is going to cook breakfast and dinner for the brother and sister because of course the dad's not going to do jack squat about it, right? And then, uh, but she's not going to cook lunch, and so Mary Frances is going to learn how to cook lunch, but she doesn't know anything. And her mom's last thing she does before she goes off to the loony bin is to. Uh, write a cookbook for her, which is contained inside of this cookbook. And from that, Mary Frances is going to learn, quote unquote, how to cook and how to become a woman, which is the whole idea of this book. So it's all different levels of crazy. And But it gets even better because what happens is that she shows up down in the kitchen, doesn't know what to do, and much like Toy Story, the entire kitchen comes alive and learn and helps her try to learn how to cook. So you have a talking toaster, you have a talking fryer, you have Auntie Rolling Pin, you have all of these characters that are introduced in woodcut blocks in the beginning of the book as the characters you're going to have. So it's got like, a, who's your favorite guy, uh, uh, John, from uh, the, 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 the one from um, Be Our Guest, Be Our Guest, Let Your Magic to the Test. Oh, Lumiere. Yeah, yeah. So it's all like this and like Toy Story, but in the kitchen teaching. And it's also got this weird undercurrent of don't tell adults because they say if you tell any adult that we talk to you, we can never talk to you again. So it's kind of got all levels of creepy in it, but also all levels of awesome. And it starts out the very first recipe she makes is toast, right? And so she walks up to this toaster and then uh, she says – all right, here's the, here's the recipe, and this is what's important. Cuts Because the other amazing thing about this is it gives insight into what it was like to cook on 
wood and coal-fired ovens back in 1912 in kind of a run-of-the-mill, like, like mid-income, mid-level house in the United States, which is an amazing window to kind of look into. Um, and furthermore, because it's written from the perspective of old cooking implements and from the aunt, it also gives insight into what the cooking was like several generations prior, back into the 1800s. So from that standpoint alone, interesting. So it's like many levels where you can re read this document. Anyway, plain toast. And this puts it to a line uh, – by the way, someday I'll do, uh, I'll do uh, the Thorns book uh, – uh, whichever one it is, uh, the, the main writers who have a whole section on toast, which was quite influential to me. But this shows how our idea of toast is not anyone else's old idea of toast. Toast. Cut stale bread into slices about half an inch thick. Remove crusts, put into wire toaster, hold over fire, moving to and fro until golden brown color. Turn and brown the other side. And the key thing here, aside from cutting off the crusts, is the fact that they're using stale bread to make the toast. So most of the time when people were talking about these toasts back in the day, they were talking much more about rusk-style things, like softer but rusks, not what we would consider toast, which is fundamentally fresh bread in the middle and crusty bread on the outside, which is a whole different mentality. So our, our current mentality of toast has nothing to do with anything that people would have called toast back in the day. So anyway, so Mary Frances goes, let me see if there's any stale bread. I should think so, a whole loaf. I'll cut two slices. And since I want it to be very nice, I'll cut off the crusts. I guess that will be enough. Oh, I do wish somebody was here to help me. There is somebody. I'll help. This is the toaster talking now. Mary Frances looked around in amazement. Seeing no one, why, where, why, who are you, she asked. I'm Miss Tea Kettle, said the tea kettle, lifting, uh, oh, it's the tea kettle, uh, lifting his lid very politely. Uh, I'm, I'm gladly at your service. And then the saucepan and everyone else. But then the toaster comes forward and teaches her how to make toast with his own body. So Mary Frances leaned over and gravely put a slice of bread in toaster, capital T toaster. He looked so funny standing there that she wanted to smile, but thought it wouldn't be polite uh, to so helpful a friend. But when he said, slide up my collar in a thick, smothery sort of voice, she laughed aloud before she could stop, but turned the sound into a cough so quickly that toaster man looked up at her queerly only a moment, and she pulled the ring up until it held the bread tightly in place. Now lift me over the fire, he demanded. Mary Frances hesitated. She couldn't tell where to take hold of him. Never mind my, this is where it gets creepy again. Never mind my legs, he said, as though he read her thoughts. I'll see to them. And he folded his legs up so close that when Mary Frances lifted him up, she could find no sign of them. Oh, you'll be burnt, she cried, as she held what Toaster Man had called his head over the bright fire. Not I, he laughed. Not I, I like it. It's the toast that'll be burnt if I'm not soon turned over. So anyway, he trains her how to make this toast and then tells her to make what is called milk toast. Now, you might have heard of milk toast as any jerk that's boring, right? But back in the day, and we're right in the throes of when people thought that when you were infirm, read the mom who's about to be shipped off to quote-unquote get well, when you were infirm, you needed to have uh, stuff that was super mild. So they took this toast that they had just made, this is anathema to anything we would do now, and make a roux, add milk into it, and not like a rare bit with cheese or anything, pour it directly over the toast and re-sog it out. And to modern ears, this is like, what kind of lunacy is this? But that was the height of sick person food back then. So you got to read this book. There's also like a good section where uh, there's a lot of anti-vagrancy, anti-Irish vagabond thing going on in, in one of the chapters. There is a... A, uh, 
mild racial slur used as the name of a pastry, which, by the way, still happens in Europe for those of you that travel to Europe. So there's a like there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of good stuff to unpack in this book, and it's worth looking looking at. You can pick up a a real copy for about a hundred between eighty and a hundred dollars, uh, and there's reprints, and you can get it on the internet. Uh, do I have any time left at all? No. Oh man, someone wanted to know. Oh man, I'm all out of cash. Someone wanted to know. Um, someone wanted to know uh, whether they should get an Excalibur or whether they should get a, um, a Zojirushi rice cooker because they're primarily interested in doing uh, chicken wing garum, which is from the Zilber's book, and uh, black black garlic. Uh, if that's all you're really gonna do, I guess get the Excalibur. They're very different. Like I use my rice cooker at least twice a week and I use my Excalibur like three times in a row and then I don't use it again for a year. So, you know, the, the Excalibur is going to have temperature control whereas the Zojirushi just does what it's going to do. Um, so for that, I would say get the Excalibur. It's quite wide. Um, but you're never, I mean like, you're never ever my wife regrets that I have the Excalibur because it's so big. It's on top of the fridge, but it's kind of big. You know what I mean? No one ever regrets having the Zojirushi rice cooker. No one ever. No one. No, no one. one. No one. Uh so I didn't get to read about unfortunately, uh, I was gonna tell you people that did I already mention this that Brazil nuts, and this is from Rosengarten's book, Brazil nuts grow on wild trees that are over 100 feet tall. They weigh four pounds, and in high winds, they fly down. And have like every year, people get killed foraging for Brazil nuts when one falls, which is why you never collect Brazil nuts in wind or rain. So if you're ever in Brazil nut area, and you're like, hey, these are Brazil nut trees, wear a hard hat, watch out. <laughs> and if it's windy or rainy, Get thee the F out of there. Cooking issues. Cooking Issues is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.